bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, for providing us with another day to worship you through the study of your word, for sending your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, into the world and to his cross so that we might walk in newness of life. For he is the light of the world, yet the world has rejected him. As your word states, He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. We pray, Father, that those hearing this morning's message are edified in such a way that their desire to keep on learning is abundantly supplied by grace. And we thank you for your patience in all of this, for you are not slow about your promise, as some count slowness, but are patient toward us, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. We do ask that you bless this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls, and may it challenge each of us as we hear your calling upon our lives. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, this morning's message title is The Gospel, Salvation and Sanctification, Part 14. I certainly would encourage all of you that if you've missed any of these lessons to do yourself a big favor and catch them. They're all packed, filled with the Word of God with uh, necessary conclusions as we continue. Uh, that's why they're in part this way. It really makes that hard statement that you should realize that it's a culmination. These lessons, these kinds of series, they're not meant to catch every other lesson. They're meant to catch every lesson. Uh, and so may I encourage you once again to do just that. On Thursday, I gave you some thoughts from a fine gentleman who lived back in the 1700s by the name of Jonathan Edwards, beginning with his words on this up here on the board. This was a book that I had uh, investigated. Christian Cautions and the Necessity of Self-Examination. Christian Cautions and the Necessity of Self-Examination by Jonathan Edwards. As you've been hearing, the Spirit's been very adamant on this topic of human rationalism. It's a plague, frankly. Human rationalism. And as we've learned through the study of Scripture, human rationalism is often the source of some of, some of the most grotesque misappropriations of Scripture. A lot of people in human rationalism, actually use Scripture. The problem is that it's a misappropriation of said Scripture. Simply stated, relative to human rationalism, it seeks to impose the human experience on the Bible, forcing it into subjection to human will. It often quotes Scripture out of context, 
and with utter disregard for plenary revelation. Again, that's what human rationalism is really good at. It seeks to impose the human experience on the Bible, forcing it into subjection to human will. It often quotes Scripture out of context and with utter disregard for plenary revelation. That means the big picture, the whole look at the Bible, such things. Let me give you a perfect example, a real one, unfortunately, but most of you will be able to relate Maybe not personally, but maybe you've seen it. A man, and this has nothing to do with Joey and Andrea, a man marries a witch of a woman. (laughs) I told you, it has nothing to do with, certainly not with Andrea. A man marries a witch of a woman, and it happens. After years of being nagged, he's completely fed up. So much so that whenever he sees even a modicum of his wife and another woman, his blood boils. So he decides to read the book of Job one afternoon. It's a good endeavor. Great idea, except he hasn't left his little issue with women behind So by the time he gets to Job 2, he's genuinely upset because of all that Job, this innocent man, has lost. By this time, he's lost his family and his wealth and everything. And again, he was blameless and upright. So he was genuinely upset. And then he reads, go to Job 2.7. Job 2.7. So this man with this history of a woman as a wife, who's, uh, let's say, less than optimum, is reading Job. And he's genuinely upset with what he reads. Maybe he's not the most learned individual when it comes to Scripture. So we're not casting aspersions necessarily on that aspect of him. Job 2.7, Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils, from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Can you guess what the man does at this point? This man with this issue? He does what lots of people do. He takes his predisposition for despising women in general and pours it all over Job's wife, who, by the way, has but one line in Scripture recorded of her. So he decides that Job's wife is a witch. This man does what you see on the board seeks to impose the human experience on the Bible, forcing it into subjection to human will. It often quotes Scripture out of context and with utter disregard for plenary revelation. So he concludes this man based on his personal experience with his awful wife, 
which is only one woman, that no woman could possibly say such a thing to a man such as Job, unless she too was a witch like his own wife. Is this truly fair to Job's wife? Of course not. Of course it isn't. More importantly, though, is it fair to the inspired Word of God? May it never be. But yet, I'd be willing to bet that every line of Scripture has been abused this way by someone in human history. It's funny because Job doesn't even cast such aspersions at his wife. He simply corrects her. Look at verse 10. Job 2.10 But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. There's Job's response to the wife. Now, he was up front and center with that person who was obviously failing at the time. But that's all we know about her. So we can't take our predisposition from our own lives and impose it on Scripture and then make some doctrine, let's call it the doctrine of Job's wife, that somehow she really is a witch because of one line recorded. Okay, all of you then, you ready? Pick your favorite line you've ever screamed at someone you love. I mean favorite, I mean the ugliest one. And let's jot that down in the Bible and record that for thousands of years. And let's see what people do to you. Is that fair? I think not. I'm sure some of you have said things that you can't even believe looking back now that it actually came across your tongue. It's not fair. And so we can't make a doctrine out of your failure either. We can't, in other words, say absolutely that you're a jerk or you're a witch or you're this or you're that. We cannot do that thing. We can certainly call it out for what it is, very likely a sin, but that's the end of it. But people who have a predisposition towards certain sins because maybe they've been burned by them, maybe there's a certain sensitivity to them, they like to take it that next step and then another step and then another step and make a doctrine out of it. And that's very, very dangerous. That's what we call human rationalism applied to Scripture. One more example for you. And pretend for a moment that you're a new convert. I mean, you've just been saved, let's say. Hardly spent any time whatsoever in the Bible. So you're a new convert, and you don't know much about the Bible. But you're feeling rambunctious in your newfound vigor. So you go to the Gospel of Matthew, and before you can read more than a single verse, you get pulled away by some detail of life. doesn't matter. But this verse that you read sticks with you throughout the day. And it's the only one. Suppose it's the only one that you've managed to read. 
Go to Matthew 16.23. Matthew 16.23. So you're a new convert with good intention. And all you have is this one verse really imparted to you for now. And it sticks with you all day. And you've heard the name Peter before, but you thought it was, you know, maybe he was a good guy, but hey, maybe not. So you read Matthew 16, 23. But he turned and said to Peter, Jesus, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> you are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And that's all you've read as a new convert so far. Is it fair to Peter at this point for this ignorant, though well-intentioned, new believer to characterize the Apostle Peter as satanic? Or better yet, is it fair to the Word of God? Is it fair to the Word of God? Two resounding no's. And so hopefully you get the point. Human rationalism sometimes could be called applied ignorance. Applied to Scripture is exceptionally dangerous. We can't impose our own self-will or our own predisposition. And we can't do that thing either in the absence of plenary revelation. Those two things make up the pillars, if you would, of human rationalism that gets people into an awful lot of trouble. You're better off if something doesn't seem quite right, just keep reading on. Just keep reading on. See what the Word of God has to say. Early on in your learning careers, you shouldn't be trying to put a bunch of sticks in the mud anyways. You should hold off with a healthy reservation, as many of you need to do. Hold off for a healthy, with a healthy reservation. If something doesn't seem quite right, hold off before you cast judgment, and then start piling doctrines based on that thing on top of it. Because if you're wrong in that one thing, then all the things you added to it fall away. So you get the point. Human rationalism is very dangerous. And it is the source of many false doctrines. The origins of false doctrines, man in his eagerness to nail down Scripture, often misappropriates, misappropriates it, which is often the source of the most convincing counterfeit doctrines. Just because a doctrine is sewn together with some Scripture, it doesn't mean it's right. It may creep you out a little bit for a pastor to say this, but I believe this pretty much. I could make the Bible say anything I want it to if I was dishonest, if I wasn't really seeking for truth. So, just because a doctrine is sewn together with Scripture, it doesn't mean it's right. Man in his eagerness to nail down Scripture often misappropriates it. In other words, they're too quick. Too quick to pass judgment on it, if you would, or 
discern what's actually truth or what the actual truth is about that thing. They just want to race forward. So man in his eagerness to nail down Scripture often misappropriates it, which is often the source of the most convincing counterfeit doctrines. Just because a doctrine is sewn together with some Scripture, it doesn't mean it's right. So here's a view into some of Edwards' thoughts from Thursday, up here in the board. Men are very apt to bring their principles to their practices, and not their practices to their principles, as they ought to. In other words, they're more likely to conform their principles um, to the things that they want. In other words, they'll morph their principles, the things they say they believe, based on what it is that they want, rather than the other way around. They, in their practice, comply not with their consciences, but all their strife is to bring their consciences to comply with their practice. Isaiah 55, 8 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. So our starting point, in other words, is not our own will. Our starting point is God's will. And if it happens to line up with yours at that moment or not, it's not the issue. But we certainly cannot try to bend the Word of God to our will. So reflect for a moment. Given the fact that we all fall prey to our human flesh from time to time, it's quite possible that we sin and behave and look like just, just like the wicked people, just like the wicked, even the unbelievers in this world. We can behave just like them from time to time when we sin. Now, granted, the wicked are relegated to human rationalism 24 by 7. However, we might possess what I call selective rationalism. Selective rationalism up here in the board when a believer chooses to pursue a course of human rationalism in an isolated case. If a doctrine is formed as a result in the soul, there's no telling the damages that can be done to self and or others. Take that first example I gave you with the man with the awful wife. Well, maybe that's, his only, that's really his only big issue. That's where he's been wounded the most. That's where he has a predisposition that's antagonistic to truth. And so he has, might have selective rationalism. He might rationalize a certain way based on his own misconceptions about women. And so when he reads the Bible, he reads the Bible with a skew, with a poor lens. His lens is clouded because of his history. And I understand it. I can understand how it happens, but it's still not right. And you have to look into your own souls as part of this self-examination and see what kind of selective rationalism, because I believe we all have it, what kind of selective rationalism exists in your soul? What things are you predisposed to? So when a believer chooses to pursue a course of human rationalism in an isolated case, that's what I mean here, if a doctrine is formed as a result in the soul, though, you take it that next step forward, 
there's no telling the damage that can be done to self and or others. Because people also have a bad habit of sharing their newfound doctrines with others. And it can be very dangerous. In this way, selective rationalism is like the little leaven that leavens the whole lump. So on that note of wickedness, the Spirit also gave me the space to share from another book from Edwards that I've been reading. It's called The Wicked. Their understandings are inconsistent with themselves. And I think it's fair to say that the wicked are inconsistent, but it's interesting to ponder how inconsistent they are even within the finite boundaries of human reason. For example, as a quote from that book, the wicked's practical judgment is inconsistent with their own reason. In other words, their judgment doesn't even hold up muster to what would be called common sense, even by their own standards. Informing their judgments of things by which they govern themselves, they do not inquire at the mouth of reason but at the mouth of their inclinations, predispositions, their own will, in other words. Furthermore, the wicked's lusts have a far greater hand in the judgments that they make of things and by which they govern themselves than their reason. Their reason tells them that it is most plain and evident that eternal things, things that are to last forever, are of vastly greater importance than the things of time. That only makes sense. Even an unbeliever understands that. Well, I have 70 years or I have eternity. Which one's more valuable? Where should I focus my attention? Yet they put their stock in temporal, not eternal things. The wicked's reason tells them that it is well worth the while for every man to deny himself outward pleasure for the good of his soul. That's good reasoning, in other words. But their governing opinion or judgment is contrary, vis-a-vis that it is not best, and that pleasures and the gratification of their lusts are worth more than any benefit they would obtain by seeking their salvation. Things don't add up in other words. So it's true then that even the, even the best of us, if, how do we apply this to what the Spirit's been saying to us then on wickedness? Even the best of us, given the pressing circumstances we face in time, may be from time to time overcome by these things, these wicked things, the things that dominate the wicked. And so rather than pointing fingers, may we learn to see it all as truth, Maybe you have a little selective rationalism in an area that you haven't discovered yet. Maybe you've been thinking this way, and then you've just found Scripture out of context to pad that thinking because you like it. And you never go back to revisit it because you like it. Until someone like me points it out and says, you might want to think about this. You might want to think of this is what a pastor's job is. You might want to think about that. You might want to look at this. But at the end of the day, we can't be pointing fingers when we're really just trying to see it all as truth. 
and find guidance against falling into the same base trappings the wicked do by nature. Maybe we can relate to the psalmist. Go to Psalm 73.1. Psalm 73.1. And it's rare that I read a whole chapter, but we're going to. Because it's nice to see, and it's relatable, Psalm 73. It's relatable to us. We're going to relate to this person as they sort of go through their ebbs and flows. They question this, and then they resolve that. They question that, and then they reconcile with God this way. And look at the person's heart. And this is what takes them right back to God. And we could use Job as a perfect example, even though his, his account is more drawn out in Scripture. He went, by the end of it all, he went back in humility to God. Psalm 73, 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I mean, who hasn't been there? Come on. Right? For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace, the garment of violence covers them. Their eyes bulges, or the eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. Love that. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore, his people return to this place, and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease they have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children when I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. Until I came to the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places, you cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment, they are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When, I, when my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you, up here in the board. Like a beast or an animal which lives by its natural instincts. When a human lives this way, the fleshly natural instincts dominate their thoughts and actions. For example, their judgment is governed by human rationalism what did you see well what the heck they must not they must why are they prospering why do the wicked prosper why do they seem to get more and more wealthy and you see this sort of back and forth in this in the psalmist soul and that's what i see this sort of ebb and flow and ebb and flow and if we use human rationalism we get angry about it 
We might even be tempted to fall prey to sin about it, to even desire it, to lust after the things that they have. Why would you ever lust after something a wicked person has? But yet we do that same thing. And that's human rationalism, you see. Human rationalism, selective rationalism, however you'd like to look at it, whenever we use it, we are like a beast. We're just using our natural instincts to interpret the things of God. So he says in 22, Then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. The psalmist, even as a believer, acted like a wicked person in his thinking. Verse 23, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel you will guide me, and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Lovely passage of Scripture. I've always thoroughly enjoyed Psalm 73 because it is so real and relatable even now. One of the great dangers, back to our point, with human rationalism is that it is acceptable to the world. When we endeavor to use human rationalism to even discern the things of God, to find a place for Scripture instead of the other way around, find our place as a result of Scripture, as a result of the Word, as a result of the Creator of the universe, find where we fit in it as opposed to trying to fit it in our little world. So one of the great dangers with human rationalism rationalism is that it is acceptable to the world. Up here on the board was a point we had on Thursday. One of the hallmarks of human rationalism is that the world will actually listen to it. Oh, sure, if you, want to take, if you want to open up the Bible and sit down with an unbeliever and leave all the supernatural things aside and just talk about the Bible, they'll talk to you. They'll say, wow, that sounds like... Some, you know, take them to Psalms or Proverbs. They'll be like, wow, that sounds like wisdom. Sounds like one of those posters on the side of the wall in the office. Yeah, you bet. But you cannot bring in the supernatural or else the conversation will end. So the world will talk about human rationalism. So one of the hallmarks of human rationalism is that the world will actually listen to it. So believers must learn to avoid such conversations as they are fruitless. Why even talk to somebody? Why even bother with someone who has no idea about the spiritual side of what it is that you're speaking of? Why even bother? It's impossible to convict someone of sin if the supernatural is agreed upon as inadmissible in court. And that's just a phrase that says, you know, if you're having a little bit of a contention, a little courtroom scene, an ad hoc courtroom scene with an individual, and you both agree to something that's 
primary evidence, the supernatural, that you can throw it out. Well, I mean, what do you have to stand on after that? So it's a fruitless conversation. Go to James 4.4. 4. James 4.4. 4. So that's not a conversation you want to have, folks, but some like to have those conversations. Why? Because they're stuck in human rationalism. I find it's usually with the more, let's call them more intellectual band of uh, Christians nowadays, the more intellectuals, they like to argue points and they think they're going to be able to argue outside of the realm of the supernatural with someone who can't even understand spiritually appraised things because they're unregenerate. They don't have the faculties to understand. It would be like saying, hey, look at that balloon up there, and the person doesn't have eyes. Isn't it beautiful? But they don't have eyes. Yeah. James 4.4. But human rationalism will make you or the world will have an affinity for it, and therefore if you carry it around, even as a Christian, they will have an affinity for you. James 4.4, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You can't be both, folks. Nowhere is this more important than with the gospel. The world wants to propagate the lie that there are other ways to have a relationship with our God. Emphasis on our. Everybody wants to claim. I just listened to an ex-president of ours just a couple of terms back, a few terms back, who claimed he was a Christian and was being interviewed. And the person says, you're a Christian. I am. And you believe that Jesus Christ is the way to God. I do. What about Muslims? I think they can get there too. What a coward. Either they're an unbeliever or they're a complete coward. One or the other. That's the problem with politics, right? You're not going to get elected if you tell someone that you're a Christian and only Christians go to heaven. You won't get elected. But it's unbelievable that this person who is the President of the United States said such a thing. I'm a Christian, but Jesus Christ, in a sense, was a liar because when he said, no one gets to the Father but through me, then he must have been lying because I just said that Muslims and Hindus and all these other people who have a different God, have the same God. But that's a lie. This is how so many so-called Christians are being duped by the God of this world. I was thinking about it this way. I'm like, why this thing? Because anytime you see evidence like that, you have to wonder, well, what's the strategy behind it? What's Satan's strategy? Why does he want everybody to say it's one God? Why does he want the world to... Turn. We know about the end times, the ecumenical church, and all this kind of thing. 
Why does he want everybody to go to one God? Like, why does he want to be able to say, okay, the Christian God and the, and the, you know, the Muslim God and the XYZ God, they're all the same. Why does he want that? And I was thinking about it. Well, let's look at a little logic when it comes to Satan. What we see is certainly logical. Satan said, I will make myself, I will make myself like the Most High, Isaiah 14, 14, the last of the five I wills. Point two, there are many gods, all spawns of Satan, the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. The world promotes that our God is the same as the God, little g, of this world, hence, quote, achieving Satan's original desire. That's why. That's why. Scripture doesn't allow... Listen, please, because I believe we're all too tolerant of this thing. I even put that coexist sign up there a couple of weeks ago. Scripture doesn't allow for others to claim that the God they serve is our God. They don't have that. Scripture is profoundly against that. Go to 1 Timothy 2.3. 1 Timothy 2.3. But this is what's taught in schools. This is what's taught in universities. This is what's taught even by so-called Christian leaders. It's, in, it's appalling the things that are going on and that nobody's saying anything. It's strange. I feel like this little squeaky little voice in the corner of the room saying, Hey, what's going on here? This is ridiculousness. And why are you all accepting this? Especially you Christians. Like, I can understand unbelievers, you know, being like, whatever. But Christians? How the heck the Christians, and then the men, and unfortunately some women, that stand behind the pulpits, teach this thing? 1 Timothy 2.3, here's what Scripture says. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. What's the truth? For there is one God. Capital G. Only one. And one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. There's only one way to get to Him. And that's Jesus Christ. And there's only one mediator who gave Himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. Those are the facts. There's one God and one mediator. There's only one way to get to God. So if you're not on that track, the narrow road, the narrow gate, going through that gate, then you don't go. Your God is somewhere else. So just say it. Your God is somewhere else. But it's like we're the ones that are sort of robbing the false peace. I've been reading Revelations lately, too. And think about the peace that's going to be supposedly ushered in. But yet we're the robbers of that thing. It's like, look at these Christians. We're just trying to get together and look what they're doing. They keep saying, no, no, it's not all one God. It's only Jesus Christ. And we're like these, you know, squeaky, squeaky people on the side that everybody's like saying, you guys are a pain. Because the rest of us are all in cahoots. But you guys keep saying, no, no, there's only one way. Because there is. It's amazing what 
people will accept. Therefore, when someone claims that their God is our God, but they don't have Christ, well, I don't know about you, but this is, in my opinion, the cause for righteous indignation. If you're going to have indignation over one thing, have it with this. I mean, people spend so much time arguing about little corner cases, you know, genealogies, as Paul would say. Stop arguing about this thing and that thing. Is Christ in the gospel truth being preached? Amen. But people want to, so people want to argue about all that stuff, but then what about the actual gospel? If you're going to be indignant, if you're going to try to fracture some so-called unity in the world, then it ought to be over what? The gospel. The gospel. So if you're going to be indignant, righteously so, over one thing, it should be on the gospel. It is correct to be upset, and I mean a godly upset, when we hear of others staking a claim to God in heaven when they simultaneously denounce Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Well, you don't get to do that. You don't get to say that the God that I have, I'm telling you that we don't have the same God. And they say, but I'm telling you we do have the same God. It's like someone trying to cling to something and you're like kicking them off. It's like, get off. You don't have the same God as I do. Your God is a liar and a cheat and a robber and a thief who comes over the side That's where righteous indignation ought to originate. If nowhere else in your soul, the one thing that should spawn indignation is the gospel being mangled. And that's what the world wants to do. And I gave you a little logic to think about relative to Satan. That's what he wants. He's trying to collect everybody unto himself. If this doesn't bother you in the least then, my friend, you need to start all over with the series and ask yourself about your own salvation, frankly. Here's an artifact from a few conversations I've had with some folks in the congregation as of late. The salvation issue. Heaven is the destination, but not the goal of salvation. I mean... People need to realize that. Heaven's not the goal of salvation. It's the destination. Is it a part of it? Yeah. Is it to be extolled? It is in Scripture, so yeah. But it's not the basis of the gospel. But yet that's what most people teach. You want to go to heaven? What's my alternative? Hell. Oh, I definitely want to go to heaven then. What do I do? Say this thing right here. So, so salvation to that person with that cheap gospel means heaven. Salvation equals heaven. Salvation means I go to heaven. No. No. Being saved from sin is the goal. There would be no reason for the prior without the issue of sin. 
So heaven is the destination, but not the goal of salvation. Being saved from sin is the goal. A cheap gospel presents something like this little formula, being saved equals going to heaven. That's a cheap gospel. Without any mention of what the issue is. Sin. Sin. So I would argue, you know, more often than not, when you go to evangelize someone, the first issue on the table is their sin. Are you a sinner? No, I'm self-righteous. I'm righteous. I'm good. I just need to figure out how to get to heaven. Jesus would have walked away. I came to save sinners, he said. So I guess sin is really the issue, and it is. And it is. If heaven were the issue, just I'm just playing around now, but if heaven were the issue, don't you think there'd be more details about it? <laughs> because it's not the issue. The issue is sin. For a couple of years, it seems, the Spirit has been prompting us to finish our sentences when it comes to doctrine. Nowhere is this more critical than with the gospel. As the Spirit's been impressing upon us, the practical issue regarding patience, even, is particularly fruitful in evangelism. And that makes sense. Think about what was just stated about sin. Well, it's a lot easier just to throw a cheap gospel at someone and walk away than it is to actually challenge someone about their sin. What say you of sin? Well, they might need a little time to think about that. Maybe, just maybe, because maybe life's good. Maybe they've got the world by the, the nose. Some of you are so bad. Maybe they got the world by the nose, right? Like an oxen with a ring. What were you guys thinking? <laughs> Trust me, I have very good hearing when it comes to giggles. I know where they all came from. Sickos. I'm not surprised. <laughs> so someone might, you know, someone that you try to evangelize might have the world by the nose. And so you say, well, this is, if you're not willing to talk about sin, then you're not willing to talk about the gospel. Because Jesus came to save sinners. So we have to finish our sentences. And we should be intolerant of a gospel or anyone else that says anything differently. Why? Salvation for many... Why patience? Salvation for many people is a drawn-out process, speaking from the manward side. While the judicial act of justification is a moment in time, man has a habit of exploiting God's patience in counting the cost of salvation. In other words, denying self, following Christ. We believers do have and have been given the Great Commission. So we have to think about patience. Patience is a virtue. Patience is especially useful in the process of evangelizing. Our job is to teach the gospel accurately, including the challenging aspects of it that suggest a person count the cost of discipleship, denying self, following Jesus, before accepting the invitation. God is a big fan, quote-unquote, 
of patience, hence the very fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22, love, peace, patience is listed third. Arguably, the greatest challenge to our patience is in evangelism, right? If you know the weight of eternal things and someone you loved is dragging their feet, your patience runs thin pretty quickly, and they don't even know why. If you could only just shake them and say, listen, it's because I know what the truth is here. Mom, dad, uncle, son, daughter. But we have to be patient. So practically speaking, we have some sound guidance on patience. It's better to face off with resistance to the true gospel than without resistance to an accommodating, less, quote, offensive gospel. And this goes for children, too. There can be no watering down the gospel. If a children's too young to understand the depravity of themselves, then they're too young to receive the gospel anyways. But God's got their back. But we don't have the right to give them false hope. We don't have the right to give anyone false hope. So we have patience. And it's better to square off with them and be sort of an affront, a stumbling block to them. But at least you got them the correct gospel. At least they've been properly, it's been properly delivered as far as you're concerned. Therefore, up here on the board, patience is often the key ingredient of or for righteous consummation. It is unsung in today's instant gratification society. We must present the true gospel and wait patiently while others respond. That's our job. There are some things that we can do with discernment, as the Spirit's going to teach us later on this morning, because we have like another hour and a half. What do you mean later on this morning? Isn't it later on this morning already? <laughs> if we lose our patience and begin casting aspersions at those we are trying to evangelize, we run the risk of misrepresenting the patient one, Jesus Christ. It wasn't that Jesus was impatient when he turned people away. He just said, your heart's not ready. Your soil's not ready yet. Here's the truth. Deny all that, and then you can follow me. You decide. I got other work to do. But that's not a sign of impatience. That's a sign of discernment. We must be careful how we speak before, during, and after we present the gospel. Have you believed yet? I just gave it to you three minutes ago. Have you believed? I'm still working out the sin issue. Have you believed yet, though? Let's go. Come on. We've got a tea time. We have to be careful how we speak. The tone of it. Is it salted with grace? How do we approach each individual. Well, I don't know. I mean, that depends on a lot of factors. The biggest one being God, the Holy Spirit, understanding your ability and their needfulness and what's actually desired and desirable in that circumstance. I can't tell you that. But I know the Spirit's there. Convicting both individuals, the deliverer and the receiver of the gospel. But nonetheless, we have to keep that gnarly flesh out of the way. 
before, during, and after the presentation of the gospel. Because the tongue is a powerful weapon. And we are, by nature, impatient. So given that Scripture depicts the tongue as a weapon, the patient tongue can't accomplish much. He gave us this a couple lessons back, Proverbs 25, 15. By forbearance or patience, a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue breaks the bone. So, be careful how you speak then. Up here on the board in the Amplified, James 1, 19-20. Understand this, my beloved brothers and sisters. Let everyone be quick to hear. Be a careful, thoughtful listener. Why? So you can understand what's going on. So you do know how to speak to an unbeliever. And every unbeliever is different. Understand this, my beloved brothers and sisters. Let everyone be quick to hear, be a careful, thoughtful listener. Slow to speak, a speaker of carefully chosen words. And slow to anger, patient, reflective, forgiving. For the resentful, deep-seated anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God that standard of behavior which he requires from us. It's the funniest thing, isn't it? We do it at salvation, we do it during sanctification. Once we get a hold of something, once the light bulb really goes off, we expect everybody else in our vicinity to be magically lit up too. Don't you see it, you idiot! Come on! What? Three seconds ago before the light bulb went off in your head, You were fine. What happened? It's the funniest thing. Amen? We do it. We're we're like the the worst people. We're horrible. He shows us something. He goes, you ready? You ready? You ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Flicks the light. You're like, oh my God, it's a glorious God's splendor. What's wrong with you? You can't see it. (laughs) It's ridiculous. It's like we've ruined the moment, right? We're like... It's like this glorious thing goes on and we ruin the moment by being jackasses. By being mad at the person who, three seconds later, was completely in cahoots with you. But now you're, you know, delivered. And you have zero patience for anybody else while God works out His good thing in them as an individual. It's amazing what we are. So concentrate as we prepare to close here. Patience is power. The pinnacle of true power is not manifest in raw force. So you can shake someone all you want, unbeliever, believer, it doesn't matter. You can shake them, yell at them, spit venom, tell them they're whatever, belittle them. It's not going to work. I mean, that's not, that's not patience at all. That's, that's, um, that's not good. Like Caddyshack? You're, you're, no, you're, you're not good. The pinnacle of true power is not manifest in raw force. Rather, it is shown through virtues. Through virtues such as patience. It takes more power to exercise patience than force one's hand. And the long-lasting effects are also greater. God was patient with you while you decided about the gospel truth. And look how long that's going to last. Some of you might be like, man, the thought of spreading the gospel was so much easier when it was cheap and convenient. Well, who are you thinking about? 
But we know through Jesus' example, who we've seen time and again in the series, consistently presented the gospel differently. Go look where he presented the exact same way to two individuals. You won't find it. He consistently presented the gospel differently. It was the same gospel, but depending on the soil he was dealing with, it was different. So we know through Jesus' example who consistently presented the gospel differently, depending on the soil he was dealing with, that the Spirit will convict us in our own approach to individual unbelievers based on what he intrinsically knows about their soil. How do you know? I mean, have you ever been led to do a certain thing? I mean, it happens to me all the time as a pastor. Led to do a certain thing like Abraham. Go there. Where are we going? Just go there. Okay, I'll obey. Have it happened to your soul? Do this thing. I have no idea why. And then in retrospect, you're like, oh, I get it now. I'll evangelize somebody. Or I did this. Or this happened. Or that happened. But you listened. You went. You followed. You obeyed because of what he knows through, omnips- uh, through omniscience before you can see any of it. And he leads you that way. Go to Colossians 4.2. Paul speaks of this as well. Colossians 4.2. So rather than being impatient and just taking the gospel and slamming it in people's faces and then telling them they're stupid for not getting it, why don't you spend a little time? I know, I know it takes, I know it means a lot more maybe work for you. But you are a laborer. Amen? You are a doulos. You are a slave. And slavery implies labor. Whether you like that idea or not, I don't know where that concept came up, but you need to throw that out as well. I thought everything was by grace, and I just get to go like this. Yeah, that sounds like Christ, because that's what he did. The first thing he did when he got his public ministry, he was 30, since he was a carpenter, he built himself a nice chair. And that's what they were doing in the upper room, you know. They were all, Jesus had gifted them. He's like, you know, this is what we're going to do. We're going to hang out. And John's like, can I have one with no arm so I can lean on your breast? You know, because that's what Jesus did. He says, this is relaxed. Great commission, great submission. Yeah. I think there's a reason why we run into each other. I think there's a reason for the local assembly. I think there's a reason why you go to work every day and run into that jackass near the water bubbler. Ah, I guess I'll wait and dehydrate. There's a reason. Why do you think that is? Why do you think God puts you in this country? God puts you in that job, that family, that marriage, that blah, blah. Why do you think that is? So you could discern nothing? That he had nothing unique to work through you? That there weren't certain soils in your periphery that needed preparation, that needed your discernment through the Spirit to recognize? You can buy that lie all you want, but that just means you're lazy. I'd just so rather just take the gospel and sling it on a wall and then go play golf or go do ballet or whatever it is Andrea does. Joey's like, I didn't know about this. Engagement's off. Poor Pete, I'm just so glad you came today. She's like, I don't care. I haven't, I haven't heard anything you said anyways. I didn't listen until you said my name. So like, 
Anthony's like, I think she's possessed. She's levitating off the chair. <laughs> yeah, yeah, come on. Colossians 4, 2. These are the conversations that go on in my head if left by my own devices. Devote yourself to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Ever pray for the right way to evangelize someone? I have. Praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak, and that implies variation. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, unbelievers, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person up here on the board how you should respond to each person regarding evangelizing. Each person is unique, depending upon a variety of things. Jesus is a perfect example of tailoring the gospel approach to different believers. Go check it out for yourself. In any case, Jesus made an issue of the soil that is being sown on. Go to Matthew 13.3. Matthew 13.3. How you should respond to each person regarding evangelizing each person is unique depending upon a variety of things. Jesus is a perfect example of tailoring the gospel approach to different unbelievers. Matthew 13, 3. And I've been saying this, by the way, to some folks over and over again. The parables do not make that mistake of hyper-analyzing a parable. A parable is a very simple concept made to convey a very simple thing. People overcook everything. But was there nitrogen in the soil? Because that would mean that the tares in the wheat, and it's, you know, I mean, the wheat would be more, you know, grow faster. It's like, what? What are you talking about? What are you talking about? Was it shale rock? What was it? Was it bluestone? I'm running out of rock because I'm not a geologist. You get the point. What kind of rock was it? Come on, it's a parable. What's he saying? He's saying there's going to be some people that don't believe and some that do. Some are even going to start getting excited about the gospel and then the world's going to drag them away in chains again. Is that that hard? No. So you've got to stop with the hyperanalyzing stuff. It's part of the remnants of hyperdoctrinalization that I know some of you have. And I've suffered it myself, so I speak from experience. Matthew 13, 3. But when you let go of those things, things become a lot easier. And you're not sacrificing anything. You're getting wiser. Matthew 13, 3. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell in the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out, and others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. 
He who has ears, let him hear. Go to verse 18. A little more explanation on this thing. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. And so even something that's, you know, sown in the heart, there's a certain intimacy there, but it's not a staying intimacy, you understand? It's what we might even call um, uh, a taste of something because it was sown in their heart. So there's a certain intimacy there, but it wasn't enough. The one on whom seed was sown in the rocky places. This is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. And he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns. This is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. No fruit, no salvation, in other words. And then we get to the believers, verse 23, and the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. One of the artifacts of reading that is up here on the board, Sowing seed, a person's soil must be properly conditioned to receive true saving faith by grace. And as we've been taught for, what, 13 lessons now, 14 lessons, that a believer will bear fruit. But improperly conditioned soil, a person who's just not ready, maybe the person actually gets it, is even excited about the prospect of Jesus Christ really does want to go to heaven. Did not the rich ruler say, how do I get eternal life? Did he not have good intention to get to heaven, so to speak, or have eternal Yeah, that's not a bad thing in of itself. The problem was, the bad thing was, he didn't want to give up himself and follow Christ. So his soil wasn't ready. He got choked out, if you would, by the details of life. And that was how Jesus presented it to him in one instance of the gospel presentation. We can't spend all our time, though, as a balance statement, trying to figure out the condition of someone else's soil. But there's certainly biblical evidence that we ought to at least be cognizant of the facts about individuals we are trying to evangelize. Think about it. Some might be totally ready, like the thief on the cross. That guy was ready to go. Others may have been annihilated by religion, totally confused about where works fit into salvation, while others still might be far too arrogant to even consider denying themselves. Evangelizing these folks may vary considerably. Consider the book of Acts and how the apostles approached the Jews. For example, Acts 13 versus the Gentiles, let's say in 1 Corinthians 15. We studied this in the Bible study. Even the apostles tailored their approach. You didn't approach a Jewish person, in other words, with the gospel of Jesus Christ the same way you approached a Gentile. And that's in Scripture. If you find the clear-cut example or examples of evangelism in Scripture, 
you'll see a marked difference between the approaches. We ought to put that much thought into our own personal ministries. So, I guess in closing, the so-called convenient gospel makes life easier for everyone, doesn't it? Even the evangelist. It's a lot easier just to say, hey, listen, here it is. You want to go to heaven? Yeah, say this thing. Let's go. You're in. No challenge, no talk about sin, nothing. No concern about maybe the readiness of the soil, this kind of a thing. So the convenient gospel isn't just easier for the professing believer. It's easier for the evangelist, which I would argue, I'm not going to say that, don't make a doctrine out of this, but just saying, the easier the gospel the more interested the people, the evangelists, are in other things. In other words, if you want to be rich and fill seats in a church, there's a formula. I get emails, I'm not kidding you, I get emails, maybe not daily, probably two or three a week. Do this. Use this formula. Go to this event and learn how to grow your church. Do this and do that and grow your church. And then they show like, you know, some guy like this, you know, with the perfect like gelled up hair and he's like rich and he's got like gold. You know, he's like, it's like, what? What are you baiting me with? What are you trying to say? What is it that you're saying? And these same individuals, if you follow up, it's just about What? charismatics or something, or I shouldn't use that word, that's a doctrinal word, but what is it about? Just getting excited? Getting emotional? Yeah, I guess you could fill seats with, I mean, anything that that makes people emotional. I think about some of the, the women out there that are teaching the Word of God that shouldn't be teaching the Word of God. Their whole thing is, find yourself. Be a stronger woman. Be yourself and be, um, how do you say what they're really saying is be a feminist, but they're, not, they're using the Bible to promote feminist agenda. Be this, be, be that, and uh, be more um, comfortable in your own skin. It's this whole emotional thing. And they say, well, I'm just encouraging somebody. But the whole thing is laced with emotionalism with no balance whatsoever. Yeah, Christ does want you to have a comfortable life. But guess what? It's comfortable because of grace. It means you're out there plowing the fields. It may not mean that you look in the mirror and you say, oh, I'm such more of a woman now by world standards. Whose standards are these people using anyways? Read Proverbs uh, 31, 10 to the end. The virtuous woman. I don't see the same message there that I see with some of these idiots that are standing behind the pulpits who shouldn't be in the first place because of their gender with a watered-down, cheap gospel saying, well, I'm all about, my ministry is about encouragement. Yeah, what about balance? You shouldn't even be behind that pulpit. There are men sitting there listening to you like idiots. Do you understand what I'm getting at? 
This is all part of the whole grand scheme. But listen, if you're trying to build a huge ministry and it's all about numbers and this kind of a thing, that's exactly what you do. They're inconsistent. The world in general does not want to be challenged with the true gospel. They just want to put more things in their basket. La 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 la. Guess I'll go to this church for a while. <laughs> what can you give me? Encourage me. Encourage me. Would you please take the gospel? No more. I'm not begging anymore. You? You going to beg anymore? No. Give some of the gospel. Do the best you can in terms of recognizing the need in the moment. Base everything you say on Scripture. You should be able to back it up at least when it comes to the gospel. And don't apologize. And don't beg. Begging makes you weak. We're not called to beg someone to accept and please accept this gospel. You see, a repentant heart, a sinner's heart, will be the same heart that receives the true gospel. The unrepentant one won't. Does that make sense? So our job in all of it is to do our job. Doesn't mean it's going to be easier on us. Not at all. I mean, the world's getting more and more horrible every day. And it's harder and harder, it seems, to find anybody that would stand even for a moment against the challenge of the gospel. So, I guess the so-called convenient gospel makes life easier for everyone, including the evangelists. But we ought to know better. And we do. Amen? Alright, I'm going to show a video, yay! Of course, my computer is saying, you want to restart? No, later.
close in prayer. I'd like to dedicate the closing moments of today's message to those who are without Christ and therefore are without hope. John 3.16 states, For God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. If you are indeed without Christ at this moment, know this, have faith in this, and embrace this as solemn truth. Acts 16.31, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved you and your household. If you do believe that you need a Savior and you repent of your sinfulness, then accept the free invitation now that is Christ Himself and be saved. If you have just believed for the very first time, I'd like to welcome you to the family of God. Father, thank you again for this morning's message for a time to fellowship in your Son's good name for a time to spend together as family in the unity of the faith. For this is truly a blessing, this unity that we find in a local assembly like ours. It is truly refreshing to be around like-minded, humble believers who are simply interested in hearing your word. What a privilege this is, Father. And our prayer is that we never become familiar with it or that we take it for granted. We are all growing, and we all have much room to grow. This we know from Scripture, yet it's you that has promised us sanctification, something guaranteed at salvation. And so it's you that we placed our trust in forevermore. Thank you, Father, for there's no other God in heaven or on earth worthy of our trust and faith. May you bless all traveling from this local assembly. It's in Christ's precious name that we do pray by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Thank you.